My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. surrounds your body and fills you with love for all lives, bringing your thumb to your first finger and part the other fingers on your hand, keeping your palm facing upwards. Breathe in deeply through both nostrils, filling first your stomach, then your diaphragm, and finally your chest. Exhale with your abdomen drawn in. Lifting it as you breathe out, keeping your chest firm. Make your breathing pattern rhythmic by counting seven seconds as you inhale and exhale. As you exhale, move your eyeballs slightly towards each other and then gently look up. You should feel a tingling sensation between your eyes. Look down after this and you will feel a charge going down your spine. Breathe in. As you exhale, focus on the sensation of the energy moving down your spine. Join your thumb and second finger together to form a mudra and inhale and exhale deeply. Visualize the breath moving down the spine and filling up your entire body with energy. Exhale completely and repeat this process for a few more breaths. After repeating this meditation three, four, seven, or even nine times, you should be primed, ready, and engaged with today's conversation featuring Bob Frizzle, author of the cult classic book, Nothing in This Book is True, But It's Exactly How Things Are. Be on the lookout for his new book, Incoming Soon, Catching the Ascension Wave, Everything You Need to Know About the Coming Great Awakening. He's here to discuss all this and much more with me mystic mark on this episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with bob frizzle there is 
very much an infusion of higher dimensional energy. Energy coming in, into this place from the higher dimensions, the fourth dimension and higher, that is of a much higher vibratory rate than the third dimensional vibratory rate on which we, this is where we currently are on the third dimension. What this means, and, and I make the case just, you know, step by step, slowly but surely in the book, that we are living on a planet that is very much in the process, deeply into the process of moving from the third dimension into the higher higher levels of the fourth dimension. And in the course of doing that, what's, what's propelling us is literally the cosmic energy, a super galactic wave that's known in the, in the, you might say, the depths of the secret space program. They've been out there, they know it's real, and it has an absolute impact on everything it touches. And so what it's doing is on the Earth here, it's accelerating things dramatically by shining the light on the darkness, shining the light on the individual darkness within our souls, and at the same time, shining the light on the collective darkness so that everything and everyone is waking up waking up when the darkness comes to the surface you are now being given a chance to revisit it so that you can let it go and discover the higher truth of what you know on a collective scale just exactly how we've been deceived and how we've been lied to and how we've been manipulated on an individual Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and here with me is a cult classic author, someone who's been in this arena of ideas, concepts, and teachings for many, many years. His book, Nothing in This Book is True But It's Exactly How Things Are, was published the year I was born, if that's saying anything, and the 25th anniversary came out not too recently he's also got a very new book coming out soon that we're going to talk about and so much more but without further ado bob frizzell here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast bob how are you today well mark i'm uh, i'm i'm just fine and i'm really really just want to take a moment to thank you for having me on and the reason I would say that is because we get to spend a couple hours talking about my favorite subjects. And and so for me, that just says it all. So thanks so much. I'm just looking forward to this. Right on. Yeah, I am as well. And, you know, you asked me in our pre-email, you know, to describe what kind of impact your book made. And I would say, you know, to be very honest, when I first found your book it was only a year ago on a little trip in in indianapolis and i was exploring a used bookstore out there and it seems like there's a little bit of a hot spot for that information in indianapolis because i found many interesting books but your book stood out as sort of fitting into what i like to collect as a book collector and reader and and i was surprised to find a lot of the concepts that were entangled throughout many of the books I have behind me, synthesized and condensed into this very easy to digest package. So if people out there listening haven't 
come across your book yet, be on the lookout because after you listen to this interview, it might synchronistically find you. But <laughs> when did this journey start, Bob? I mean, how, how far back does this go? Oh, that's a great, great question. I just have to have to think about that one for a moment. When when did it when did it all begin? Goodness sakes. You know, I've I've been a searcher for a long, long time. And when that all began, I'm I'm just not quite sure. But there is a time that I can point to. That was the early 1990s, about 1990, 1991, when, you know, I was already deeply immersed in this work. And I was deeply immersed in it for literally out of necessity, because way back in the day, back in the 1970s, my great goal in life was to be the very best bowler that I could be a professional bowler, you know, making my making my living as a as a bowler. And I bowled six tournaments, I believe it was out on the on the national tour. And I realized that in order to narrow the gap between where I was and where I wanted to be, I had to learn how to perform in better in, in, in pressure situations. That was the big thing that, that, that I noticed about the, you know, the top guys out there, they just seemed to have ice in their veins and I didn't. <laughs> so that, that's really how it all began. But then when I injured my back and hurt it really bad, it all came to a crashing halt. What my life became about then, Mark, was finding a way to heal myself. And what I mean is that when it takes you about 45 minutes to lie, you're lying in bed in the morning, you can't move, and you don't know how the heck you're going to be able to move, but somehow you just have enough desire to find a way to get out of bed. 45 minutes later, it was usually the case, and I found a way to get out of bed for all the good it did. So needless to say, bowling was out of the question, and just was I able to even live my life? Well, if you're learning how to deal with pain that's off the scale, yeah, sort of. But I had to find a way to heal myself, not doctors, chiropractors. Yes, they helped for a well, but diminishing returns quickly set in, and what that left was only one option. I had to find a way to heal myself, and I was starting from square one. Well, I quickly discovered, Mark, that everything is a function of consciousness, and so my journey quickly became a spiritual journey, seeking spiritual healing, exploring the gap between who we think we are and who we really are, and some of the literature I was reading was clearly pointing to that, and I just began to realize this is the direction I must go in. Well, that just kept going and going and going until the early 1990s when I did learn enough about myself to begin to heal myself, to begin to heal my back injury, and but it didn't stop there. I mean, information started to come to me after I thought I was really pretty well versed in this stuff, but information that I didn't know about and knew that I needed to know about started to come to me in 1990, and I just saw that as an exciting adventure. Because one of the great lessons I had learned is to let go of my mind and to learn to follow my spirit within and to do it without hesitation. No matter what it might look like, no matter what it might sound like, if it resonates, if it feels right, I learned that I must go with it, and I did. And, and, and really out of that, nothing in this book is true, which is an amazing story in itself. <laughs> Maybe we can talk about that came to be very much, including our mutual friend, Richard Grossinger. <laughs> 
Right. And, and I, I do, I think I, I do recall you talking about this with a mutual friend, Joe, on Lighting the Void, that Richard was one of the clients that came to you to learn this breathing technique. And yeah. I'd like to learn more about that. And it seems like that's how the, the book got published. The publisher came to you. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. That all happened in October of 1992, when one day I got a call from this guy who said his name was Richard, and he wanted to explore that which I was teaching at the time, breathwork. And, and so he came for a session. And he came, really, he, he brought all his doubts with him, let's put it that way. And so I guess it was up to me to show him. And, and about halfway into his, his initial session, he had really a profound experience. And all of a sudden, it opened up a doorway. And, and uh, we began to really communicate. There was tremendous rapport that was beginning to happen. And yeah, he told me. He told me that he owned a publishing company, but look, I was not auditioning to write a book. I was not an author. That's the way I held myself. And the reason I, I was interested in Richard in his publishing company was because he published Richard Hoagland's book, The Monuments on Mars. And back in the day, back in the 1990s, Richard Hoagland goodness sakes, if you ever listen to, what is it, the late night show, Art Bell, uh, Coast, Coast to Coast, Coast AM, yeah. Hoagland was a regular guest on that, and I was just fascinated by what he had to say about his monuments and the face on Mars. And when I found out that Richard's company published that book, well, you know what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and so we just had all these interesting conversations, and I was beginning to tell him what I was learning in the you know, here again, a couple of years earlier, I got this message that, hey, there's something you need to know here and uh, you need to you need to really take a deep dive into it, which is exactly what I was doing. Well, what that did was it set off a series of events that culminated one day where he called me and, and he, actually he left a message. Probably a good thing that it was a message because he said, how would you like to write a book? <laughs> And my initial thought was, you've got to be kidding. I'm not an author. And I just ran through, through my mind before I called him back. But I realized that this was beyond the players. Four years earlier in 1988, I had a client, a breathwork client who came to me. And, uh, and after a series of sessions, she was midway through her series of sessions with me. She told me that she was an author and she showed me a copy of the manuscript that she was writing. It was about our work together. And she suggested that we co-author a book together. And, you know, that it, it, it just came up for me. What do I have to say? You know, I just didn't think that I had anything unique enough to say. So when she told me that we didn't have a publisher and that we we're going to write a proposal to try and find one, I said, nah, I don't want to do that. I didn't tell her, but I said to myself, the only way I would ever write a book is if a publisher comes to me and asks, and I figured I was safe. Well, four years later, uh, this is exactly what happened. And I realized, you know, that I, I couldn't say no to this. There was, there were higher forces at work here. So nothing in this book is true, slowly got written. And mm. boy, I'll tell you, it was a chore. It was a, it was, it was a project, that's for sure. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. And 
If I remember correctly, you were attempting to sort of give a spiritual perspective that can explain why these monuments would be on Mars, or at least that was sort of the seed that yeah. was planted. And and I wonder, you know, because I'm again, I was born in '94. I only recently, in the past five years, learned about these coast-to-coast -coast interviews and Richard Hoagland's work. And, you know, it's very fascinating because it seems like that topic has sort of lost some steam, you know? You don't hear a lot of people talk about Mars outside of maybe these futurists who want to pay for Elon to get there or whoever else. But, uh, you know, has there been any, you know, any insights or breakthroughs in that, you know, any developments at a, in the past 20 or so years? Yeah, NASA. NASA does not want us to know about this. It's the wrong planet for us to be looking at. Because as I go into in some detail in my book, we already have a city on Mars and have had one there for quite some time. <laughs> and they don't want us to know that. <laughs> so it's basically, it's, it's mostly an underground city. Fairly rather hostile climate on Mars on the surface. So you don't want to spend too much time there. But uh, it's a... I don't know. It's still there, you know, it, and it's, I suppose, alive, alive and well. But yeah, so that's really the story in a nutshell. NASA does not want us to know. I mean, they know exactly what's going on on Mars. Come on. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. It's not for us. Right, right. And we should go through the the journey that it was to create this book because it, it's quite a book it deserves a 25th an anniversary edition i don't think i have that edition i have a revised edition but if i'm correct it started with rebirthing for you right this is something that that yeah. you got into can you tell us more about that because i've done i've done something similar christopher hyatt dr for Dr. Christopher Hyatt has this undoing yourself meditation, and it seems similar. Maybe I'm incorrect, but but tell us about rebirthing. Well, I called it rebirthing back in the day, back in 1982, when Richard came to me. I have a much better name for it right now, breath alchemy, and and I've learned so much more about what I now call breath alchemy than I than I ever knew back in the day, although it was, you know, it was my full-time profession, just teaching it both in groups and in one-on-one -on -one to, to others, which is what I still do. I do all my work online now, however. Yeah, what really breath alchemy is about, well, boy, I was thinking if I could give you a quick answer, but that wouldn't be so easy we got two hours we got time Bob. yeah let, let it all hang loose <laughs> yeah, no, right. no worries right. no radio much. breaks here yeah no breaks no all right well in my book in nothing in this book is true i i go into the details of earth history and how and when we fell we haven't i we haven't always been on what I call really the bottom of the barrel of self-aware consciousness. There was a time, and I make the case for it being in Atlantis, and we fell about 13,000 years ago. Well, okay, but whenever it was, there was a point in time when you and I, in meaning humans, those who inhabited the planet, uh, planet Earth, we were on a relatively, if not much higher level of awareness. And to really give it a bottom line mark, we were in touch with our inner awareness, very much our intuitive inner awareness, our heartfelt connection to source, what I like to call our higher self. 
And when you are in a heartfelt connection with your higher self, you're able to go beyond and find a common denominator that is well beyond the polarized uh, re view of reality that we see right now. So you can go beyond right and wrong and good and evil and all that stuff. And you can find a very common theme that interestingly enough does not have its polar opposite because it's coming from source. It's coming from the pureness of the oneness that created this, this reality and everything in it in the first place. And it does not have its polar opposite. When you're in touch, it is the source of inner, not well, on total levels of inner peace and presence and joyfulness and creativity. And, you know, all the good stuff like that. Well, what happened when we fell is that we moved from our heartfelt oneness into our minds and we became our mind. Well, the mind is not really who we are. It's what I call the false self. Many people call it the ego. And what it is, it's polarized. The mind is a polarized instrument, meaning it's in a continual state of judgment. It's looking out at the reality and it has an internal, you might say, sense of how the reality should shape up. You know, how you should be as a person, how it should be as a situation. And if the actual person or the actual situation doesn't measure up to your mind's idealized version of it, we automatically judge it. We, what I call, we make it wrong because it's not as the mind thinks it should be. And so what that does, it creates an enormous amount of eternal internal conflict, which means that we're never living in the present moment when we're in a state of judgment. You can't be, because when you're consistently comparing reality to how you think it should be, rather than letting it be the way it is, number one, it's not inherent in the situation itself that it's bad and wrong. It's clearly a function of how you're making it of the context, the unwitting context in which you're holding it. This thing is bad and wrong, and you just created being that way. And so that leads to a lot of conflict. And so what breath alchemy does is it, well, it uses a, a very, very powerful and I don't mean that in an alarming way because I teach you how to relax into it and literally go with the flow to open up your internal feeling sense. There's a certain breathing rhythm that's involved with it, in other words. And that breathing rhythm begins to clear away the cobwebs <laughs> because what it's doing is it's connecting you to source energy, the life force energy that I like to call prana. And prana is... It's it's the most, well, it's the most necessary energy of all. We can't live without it. It is the energy of life. And so when you've got vast amounts of prana, of life force energy moving through your body, it enhances your ability to feel that energy. And it's also the purest, most powerful healing energy that we have throughout literally the universe. And what it does in its healing endeavor is it starts lifting up packets of stuck energy that you and I have been holding on to as the result of suppressing all that judgmental energy that doesn't feel good. And, and so it gives you a chance to revisit it so you can transmute that energy so you can integrate the energy into your sense of well-being. So you can transmute it into, into energy that enhances 
life rather than detracts from your sense of well-being. Well, what that does is it opens up the channel. It, it reconnects you back to your heartfelt the connection to oneness. And now you have that channel moving through you where you no longer have the polarized opposites. You have just the real thing. You know, joyfulness and internal inner peace and all the goodies coming through you. And it's always in the present moment. And so it just, well, to put a bottom line on it, my favorite, my favorite quote from all time is from Helen Keller, who said, life is either an exciting adventure or it's nothing. And what she's talking about is exactly what I'm getting at right here. And that is when you make the shift back from your, from your, from your reactive mind, which is in continual state of judgment, which kind of reduces you to going through the motions. This is what she meant when she said it's nothing and, and restores you back to life being real so that you're in resonance with life, so that you're in the presence of life again. And when you're in the presence of life, life is exciting. And that's really, in a nutshell, what the breath alchemy technique does. It's totally experiential. Wow. Wow, I love it. And it, it, it reminds me of something we talk about here on the show all the time, which is the ever-expanding now and how to get yourself back into it and, and how our lives, usually, in the mundane reality that most of us are born into, keep us so in the past or worried about the future that we never really get a sense of presence. We never You're reading it perfectly. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. You got it. And that's right. Uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle became rather famous for his book, The Power of Now. And I'll just uh, tell you very quickly back in, you know, almost 20 years ago, 2003, a client came to me when I was still doing in-person sessions and uh, he was all excited. And he said, here, you got to listen to this. And uh, he gave me the audio book to Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. And so I said, okay. So I started listening to it and it didn't take very long to quickly come to the realization that what he said is that you got to listen because you guys are saying the exact same thing that indeed we were. Uh, you just nailed it right there that we're never in the present moment because the mind does not know the present moment. The mind is not, the mind is never present because it can't be. All it is is just reactive. All it is is mechanical. All it is is a bunch of survival recordings, endless loop recordings that play itself over and over and over whenever you and I think that there's a threat to our safety or survival or, or whatever. So you're, you don't know presence when you're stuck in the, in the past, when you see the present through the conditioning of your past, and when you see a future event through the anxiety of some terrible event that might happen or something like that, yeah, there is no presence then. So breath alchemy restores the present moment. That's a great way of saying it. Wow. Wow. And, and thank you for elaborating. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to notice the, the difference in response that you get from the world around you when you approach life from that perspective of the now i mean it, it's it's like you know you talk about synchronicity this is a way to generate it folks you know yeah. get out in in the now that's the only way it's the only way because life only shows up in the present moment and uh, and uh, it's i mean if you stop and think about it it's only in the present moment that you can have memories of the past is still happening in the moment right mm. 
And the same is true for some imagined a future event. You, you can only think about it in the present moment, yet the reactive mind wants to wants you just to suck you in. I uh, kind of opened up a can of worms, and I think there's a loop or two that that maybe should should be closed here. In the book, in the 25th anniversary edition of Nothing, I should say, which is really a brand new book because it's got 10 completely new chapters and no chapter is has been left untouched, let's put it that way, with 10 completely new ones. But one of the great additions I made was I went into great detail on the mechanical nature of the mind. And the way I define it is that if I were to give a definition of the mind, Mark, I would say that the mind is a linear arrangement, a linear arrangement of multi-sensory, let's put it sophisticated recordings of successive moments of now. So basically, it's a very sophisticated multi-sensory tape recorder. And what it's doing is, is as I just said there, recording successive moments of now. Now, the purpose or the design function, rather, of the mind is the survival of the being or whatever the being considers itself to be. Well, it's like I was saying a while earlier, when we fell from Atlantis, we became our minds. And so even though it's not who we really are, if you really are living life as though you are your mind, now the purpose or the design function of the mind becomes the survival of the mind itself. And the mind is this very sophisticated multi-sensory recording machine. And so now the purpose of the mind becomes the survival of these recordings that the mind makes whenever it feels that you're, that you're threatened. Mm. And we, our survival, according to our mind, has been threatened literally from the moment of birth. From the moment we're born, we become our mind because we're born into a traumatic situation where there is a... A perceived at least threat to our safety, perhaps our survival. There's relative unconsciousness. If your mother was drugged when you were born, you got some of that. You came into this earth relatively unconscious. And there is very much a perceived, if not real, threat to our survival. I mean, you know, not all babies make it alive. Uh, most of us do, however but without significant damage, because at that moment on, we have become our reactive mind. And because of the associative nature of the mind, there are so many stimuli out there that can and do remind you of earlier perceived or real threats to survival that these survival tapes are playing literally 24 seven. And we confuse that for reality. I mean, hello? I mean, that's the great wake-up call that I began to discover back in the day out of necessity when I was, as I suggested earlier, exploring the gap between who we think we are, we think we are our, our mind, and who we really are, who we really are is our is restoring our mind back to its rightful role as a faithful servant of our consciousness who was never ever intended to be our master. It's not big enough for the job and it knows it. <laughs> you restore it back to the rightful role of servant of your consciousness. And now you're opening up the doorway for your true self, your inner connection, your higher self, your connection to source to begin to shine through. And that's where presence and that's where life begins to show up. And that's when Helen, what Helen Keller meant when she said life is either an exciting adventure or it's nothing. You've shifted from a black and white movie to Technicolor. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, breath alchemy seems like the methodology 
to attain this. So I'm going to make sure that there are links in the episode description so folks interested can go right over there and sign up and learn more. But there are some esoteric aspects to this that people may not be aware how familiar they already are with it because we see these sorts of symbols all the time. I want to talk about the Merkaba and and sacred geometry and, and how this fits into it because I feel yeah. like what we're talking about when we say the mind, it's almost like our Merkaba has lost motion. Am I incorrect in thinking that? Oh, it's it. like frozen. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> sitting dormant for most people. Right. Well, that's uh, very much a related related topic here. Actually, everything is interrelated. <laughs> but let's let's just talk about that for a while, and uh, and just take this discussion a little bit deeper. And uh, let me just suggest that as we look out at the reality, the our true nature, our higher self, is is intimately connected to source. And when we're in touch with it, it very much connects the dots and it sees wholeness. It's our intuitive side that we access through our right through our right brain, which opens up the heart, the doorway, then literally to the higher self. But as we be, have become our mind and convince ourselves thoroughly that that's indeed who we are, the mind looks out at the reality and it does not see wholeness. <laughs> it does not see wholeness. That's an understatement. Because what it sees is division and separation. It's looking out at a world that it does not perceive as it, but as something separate from itself. And so, you know, I it doesn't feel interconnected to all of life. It It doesn't feel that way at all. And it's, it looks over at the right brain, which is says, hey, we're all one, we're all interconnected. And the left brain, the mind goes, you're crazy. <laughs> I don't see interconnection. I don't see oneness. All I see is, you know, separation and division. And, you know, it's dangerous out there and you got to be on your guard and, you know, all things like that. Well, the mind will stay separate. It'll stay separate probably forever until, you know, the awakening occurs. And there is a great awakening that's occurring on our planet right now. Thank goodness. People are getting it right and left. But really, the mind needs to be shown unity. If there's only one way that you can show the mind unity because it's totally logical in its nature, left brain, the mind is purely logical, the right brain, the connection to the heart is purely intuitive, you've got to show it logically. And that's where sacred geometry comes in so, so nicely. It's so such a perfect tool for showing the mind the unity of life. And what I'm really getting at here is the perfect tool for showing you the holographic universe. And when your mind clearly sees that everything in this reality, everything in this universe just literally came out of there was an initial photon. And I, I show that through a series of geometrical drawings. One initial photon that began the whole thing back in the day and everything is a fractal or a hologram of that. And so what do we know about a hologram? Well, we do know that every you can take a hologram and you can cut it, say, into four equal pieces or 400 equal pieces. But let's just say four. And if you do, if you shine a laser through each one of those quarter-sized pieces, what you're going to get is a quarter-sized version of the whole. 
so the the whole is contained in every bit of a hologram. You and I, Mark, are a hologram. And what that means is that we have the blueprint for the entire universe contained within us. It's all within us. There are no accidents. Everything is a portion, a smaller version of the whole. And there's no exception to that whatsoever. And the mind has to be thoroughly convinced of that. Because until it sees that, its interaction with, the, with the, our intuitive side is very much like a bad marriage that never works. I mean, one side can be saying, can be speaking absolute truth, but the other side is going to hear it, you know, as propaganda or just some sort of nonsense. It's only when it can be shown without, without hesitation that everything is totally and completely interlinked can the mind begin to relax and begin to see and understand and experience wholeness. And when it does, now the two sides are able to communicate because the corpus callosum, that which divides the two sides, really has a job of passing information between the two sides, but it can't. How can it when the two sides don't agree or don't see on anything? It, it, it's only when the mind begins to see unity can the two sides begin to communicate again and we can begin to restore the mind back to its rightful role as a faithful servant of our consciousness. And as I said earlier, it's never intended to be our master. Now you're opening up the doorway for wholeness and oneness to occur in your, in your life again. And your mind, using it as a faithful servant, is, I mean, we need our mind. You can't just throw it out the window and pretend it doesn't exist. I mean, it's great at solving problems. And it's great at, at, for projects and, you know, good things like that. So given its rightful role, it becomes a very useful servant. Well, that... Uh, what I'm getting at now is the whole idea of the Merkaba. As you correctly pointed out, well, let me just lay a little more groundwork. <laughs> Goodness, start talking about this and realize, ah, we got to just go a bit deeper here. <laughs> just a little bit. The Merkaba, I, I mentioned earlier, showing in sacred geometry that everything came out of this original photon. And I do mean everything came out of that because everything is just a holographic just literally it's a holographic projection of our consciousness it's is what it is what it really is the merkaba is that let's just let's just call it a perfect holographic representation of the original photon what it is is a is it's what it is is the universe it's the universal pattern of creation it's that which everything came out of that's the original photon and that image happens also to be around our bodies how could it not be it's around everything because it is everything and included in what it is is ultimately it can become a vehicle of ascension to move interdimensionally well as you noted our, on most people it is just sitting dormant why? Well, because we, you know, Merkabas don't function too well for a culture that is living out of its mind, out of its reactive mind. You got to be, you got to be, you got to be present. <laughs> you got to be coming from your connection to source in order for that to begin to open up. And so it is possible. In the book, I give the, the details of a 17-breath meditation, the purpose of which is to reactivate those counter-rotating rotating fields around the body, just to, you know, 
aid in the process of restoring consciousness or restoring awareness and to get you reconnected with your true self. So, yeah, that's another important part of it. Absolutely. And, and I like how we sort of had to go into fractals and the fact that we're living in a holographic universe. It's, it's essential to understand. And yeah. it feels almost like a, a key that when you hear it or learn about it and fully are able to comprehend it, it unlocks a level of understanding, so to speak. There you go. Yeah. That is correct. That is correct. Sacred geometry is a universal language that's, it's, it's, I'm told it's known everywhere throughout the cosmos. Mm. And it makes perfect sense. And uh, so it is a universal language that can be used to talk about anything. And the reason it can be used to talk about anything is because anything and everything is totally and completely interconnected. <laughs> going back to this original photon, and everything is a hologram off of that. So, so it's it's pretty interesting stuff. And uh, so that's that's what I use sacred geometry for. And it wasn't, and I didn't really care about learning sacred geometry for its own sake. My interest was in in just you know I just wanted to unpack what's going on here. It's kind of like the ever question I've been asking myself for the past mul multiple years in the right now. And it began in earnest back in 1990, 1991. I was asking myself all the time, what's going on here? And boy, the, the doors really opened, the whole ET equation and just things that I had never, ever thought about. But if you really, if you really want to know who you are, and I really wanted to know who I are out of uh, who I am out of absolute necessity because I need to heal myself. I wanted to get my life back again so I could get out of bed in the morning and go hiking and, you know, live life again. As I said earlier, everything is a function of consciousness. And my journey quickly, I realized very quickly that it is a spiritual journey. And there's the key to your healing right there. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I mean, it's just been an exciting a journey. It's just, just continuing to this day. And I'm just waking up with a big smile on my face every day. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and you know, I think so many people can find inspiration in your story and overcoming those health challenges, you know, and, and I think as I put it, the key unlocking that understanding, it's not just about understanding, you know, the history or the sacred science. It could be as simple as regaining your health because it seems like part of what's keeping us trapped here, so to speak, is this ignorance of our true nature. And, yeah. and over time, that has a degenerative effect on us and, and, like you said, we're born traumatized. So, so many of us are walking around blind to these real effects that we're causing in our lives. And then when the, you know, results come to us, we're not even sure how it happened in the first place. Now you opened up another great doorway, Mark. Thanks. Let's just dig a little deeper here. Let's just here again, looking at the polarized mind, which is in a continual state of judgment. Now, every time you and I judge something and, and you know, we do it all the time, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's just who we are when we're, you know, when the mind is operative, we're continually in a state of judgment. And so anytime you and I judge someone or something, 
or I like to call it make it wrong. Make wrong is also a noun. Anytime you and I make somebody or something wrong, what happens is two things. Number one, there's the conceptual aspect. In other words, it doesn't, the person or the situation did not measure up to our mind's idealized version of how it should be. And so there's the conceptual thing. This thing is, or this person is bad and wrong because X, Y, Z and A, B, C and, and there, and, and you believe your make wrong. I mean, we don't just make something wrong. We believe it. That's the survival nature of the mind. The mind in order to survive needs to be right, has this insatiable desire to be right. So you make this person or this thing wrong and you believe your make wrong. So that's the first aspect, the conceptual. Well, the second aspect of it is, is that there is an instantly generated pattern of energy in your body. Uh, I call it simply a sensation or even more simply a feeling. Now, because the conceptual aspect of it was, was negative, this thing really is bad and wrong. The corresponding instantly generating feeling can only be a negative feeling. I mean, that just stands to reason. But you know from your own life, you know, if you... Let's just say you get into a fairly, if not very heated argument with somebody and, you know, you're right and that person is wrong and they're feeling exactly the same way. And there's all this, you know, yeah, and emotional, whatever, and, you know, all that. Well, you know, it's pretty clear that there's an instantly generating feeling feeling there that doesn't feel so great. So I think we can all we can all see that. So now. The thing is that as human beings, you and I are quite committed to feeling good. At least most of us want to feel good. So there's the two things going on. Our mind has this compulsive need to be right. And you could argue that, yeah, it kind of needs that. Otherwise, you have difficulty putting two sentences together or figuring anything out. But the other side of that is it can get you into a little bit of difficulty. And I think we've all noticed that. The other aspect is that we want to feel good. And so you and I, in the absence of any technique where we've learned how to consciously transmute energy, I mean, I was never taught in that in school. I don't think you were either. <laughs> in fact, everything we've learned just seems to be the pretty much, if not exact opposite of that. We've been taught to fight and resist. And so if there's an unpleasant feeling and you want to feel good, what we do is we've become very good at finding ways to distract ourselves as best we can from that unpleasant feeling. I call that suppression. And it has various component parts to it. The first is that we find a way to distract ourselves from the unpleasant feeling. We turn on the TV, we turn to some alcohol or drugs or, or you know, you go on and on with that. Some people become gamble their, their bad feelings away. I mean, there's, we're, we're very good at finding ways to distance ourselves from those unpleasant feelings. The second thing that happens is that the body tenses up at very much armors. And, and so to give you even more distance from that unpleasant feeling, the third component is that the breathing becomes very, very shallow indeed. It's like literally we hold our breath. And so what it does is it enables you to get on with it a little bit, but it only works to a certain degree because, you know, anytime something or somebody comes along to re-remind you of that unpleasant situation, bingo, there you go again. You're, you're back into a state of reactivation. So, so it's, it's not the way out. 
And the way out, on the other hand, is literally learning that whatever you resist is only going to give you more of what you don't like and more of what you don't want. And for the most part, that's all we know. Suppression is a form of resistance. And so there is a, you might say, a flip side to that resistance leads to persistence thing. And it's what I call the harmonizing principle. What it says very simply, if you can learn how to go into and go with what you've been fighting and resisting, rather than, you know, just come out of resistance and just align with it and go with the flow of it, very simply, instead of making war with it, instead of trying, fighting and trying to get rid of it, if you can find a way to allow it to be the way it is to make peace with it instead, and specifically, if you can learn how to do that with the feeling component, what you will discover is that you have contained within you. It's your innate ability literally to transmute energy that was feeling very unpleasant and transmute it into energy that is very pleasant and life enhancing so you can get on with your life. Now, if you stop and think about it for a moment, the number of times that you and I have judged someone or, or something, and every time we find, try and find a way to suppress that, what happens to that energy? Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't go away. It lives in the body in the form of what I call stuck energy. And for all the judgments that you and I have made in our lifetime, there's a whole lot of stuck energy in our body that if we don't learn how to deal with it consciously, it starts dealing with us. And that's initially in the form of aches and pains, in the form of stress and tension, anxiety, and things like that. In its more advanced state, it is the source, I'm quite convinced, of all illness and all disease, including all back injuries. <laughs> and that was the great lesson I learned. I learned I had to stop fighting life and to learn to go with it, and specifically with the feeling component. And that, interestingly enough, was the birth of my breath alchemy technique and the key to my healing. And literally the key to anybody's healing. So that's just a little deeper dive into, into, the, into the window that you opened up. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, no, it's, it's a pleasure. And, you know, you, you notice the, the title of this podcast, the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And, you know, that's not just a catchy title. It's a true statement. And I really, you know, always had that instinct to learn this stuff to help my family out, right? Because, you know, elderly grandparents, my father working, you know, seven days a week for the past 40 years of his life, and probably more than that, you know, he, there, there are things that they are blocked to. And yeah. something like breath alchemy, unfortunately, I think they would hear that and their first reaction would just be like, oh, that sounds nice, but I don't have time for it, right? And, you know, there's something about this construct of the mind that we call society that pulls people so far away from who they are that they don't really get a chance to to live a, a, a life that's enhanced. I mean, they think life enhancement, they think, well, I'll retire in Florida or I'll take a vacation every now and then. They don't think that there's something as simple as a breathing technique that that could liberate them. I'm wondering, you know, what, have you ever pondered why that is? I mean, what, yeah. what are your thoughts to explain yeah, that? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time wondering about that. And, well, there's just so much that 
can be said here. <coughs> but as you keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper, you begin to realize that that you know it's it's probably not an accident that all of our institutions are set up in such a way that you know I just touched on it a little bit earlier when I just kind of suggested that in the absence of learning any technique to transmute energy, you and I are just left with just trying to find a way to get on with it. And as I said, most of us are very very good at suppressing, which sort of enables you to to get on with your life to you know to come back and to, you know, to, to leave the upset behind enough so that you can, so that you can get going again. But I don't think the bottom line is that it's an accident that our institutions are all set up in a way that facilitates us living from our false self. Because what I've discovered, and it's, it's getting out pretty good right now, that beneath all of this, there is nothing that just happens that, you know, nothing just happens. Everything, you know, I quite convinced that everything that happens is happens because there's kind of like a current, a direction that sways it in that direction. There is a controlling force that has been in control of this planet for a long, long time. Their control is beginning very much to wane and they're in the final stages of control. Everything is a function of consciousness and the light is becoming stronger enough on this planet right now for people to realize, to begin to wake up and realize how deeply we've been deceived and how deeply we've been controlled and manipulated. So the level of manipulation is such that if there's only a few thousand of you and you want to control 7 billion or 8 billion people, however many there are, how do you do it? Well, one of the great ways of doing it, one of the great secrets is, is that you hoard all the knowledge and you keep the masses in ignorant. What better way to keep the masses in ignorant than to convince them that they are who they are not, that they are their false self, their mind, their ego, which is nothing but a reactive mind spewing out just endless loop recordings of, 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 of survival. And, and it just, it just, it just keeps us stuck. And then further, as you're, you know, you shared about your father working 40 hours a week, 24 seven, how much time does he have to contemplate who he is and why he's here in the first place? You know, if you're like most people, you get home from work, you're tired, you just want to kick back and relax and turn on the TV and forget about it and, and whatever. But with all that being said, there is a great awakening that's happening on the planet right now. The light is stronger than the darkness for the first time in goodness sakes, 15 or 16,000 years. And there is a very, very powerful and important principle that we need to keep in mind. And it's just stated very simply. A very simple yet very important principle is that just suppose that you walk into a room that is totally dark. You can't see a thing. But you know where the light switch is. Now, I'm going to ask you a stupid question. <laughs> what happened to the darkness the moment you flipped on the light switch? It all evaporates. It vanishes. There you go. Darkness cannot survive in the presence of light. And so the reason that the 
some people call them the, the Illuminati. I like to call them the cabal. They're commonly called the deep state right now because it's getting out there. No matter what you call them, there's a few thousand of them. They've been controlling the scenes behind the scenes for a long, long time right now. But the light is becoming stronger than the darkness, and darkness cannot survive in the presence of light. So the acceleration is happening on this planet, the great awakening, the increase in the vibratory rate of the energy of this planet is becoming so pronounced, so profound, literally higher dimensional energy coming in, that it's, it's, they're being forced out of darkness and into the light. And so now we're able to begin to shine the spotlight on these guys and to see what they're doing. And it's becoming very, very clear and very, very obvious that they do not have our best interests at heart. Far from it. That's an understatement for sure. And so once they're exposed to the light, now, again, the, they cannot survive. And it's only a matter of time. So that darkness cannot survive in the presence of light is true on the grand scale and the big picture of things. It's also true on the individual level. And that's the principle through which breath alchemy in any good consciousness technique works. Darkness cannot survive in the presence of light. And you learn to transmute the darkness within you into the light within you, your reconnection to source. Right. Wow. So we're coming on the top of the hour here, and, and the whole show is free. We don't cut it in half or anything like that. But I, I do want to, towards the, the second part of our conversation, touch on some of the, the more esoteric aspects of your research and your book. And I think one way to get into that would be to talk about something I've heard you say and I've seen you write in your book, which is, our planet is a star seed. And I'm wondering, you know, A, can you elaborate on that for people who may not know what that means? And B, what is the original intention of this planet? Because it seems like we're a unique and special place in the universe. Yeah, in a lot of ways we are. But with that being said, you know, you could make the case for every place being unique and special because here again, once you realize the nature, the true nature of reality, that everything is a hologram, that means everything is a smaller version of the one spirit that moves through all life everywhere. And so in that sense, there's absolutely nothing, nothing that is not very special and, uh, and literally, literally unique because even though we're all an intimate part of the whole, we're all, we all have our unique respect perspective on it. Oh, this is a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for asking. We'll have some fun with it. You know, I, in the, in the book, I have a whole big, long chapter, a chapter on earth history. I believe it's just absolutely necessary because we need, to, in order to know who we are, we need to know where we've been and where we're going. How else can we know? We assume, and we're because we're told that everything began about 3800 BC in Sumer, and there was nothing before that except hairy barbarians, and that obviously we're the greatest thing that ever existed on this planet. And maybe, maybe there's just a little bit more to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've... yeah, so I've been discovering as that doesn't even scratch the surface. Because in fact, I've 
well, I've discovered to my own satisfaction that there have been civilizations on this planet that are so far ahead of us that we can't even imagine. And I, I just like to flash back to a certain Star Trek episode, and I like to I like to throw Star Trek in there whenever I can, because number one, who isn't a Trekkie? <laughs> Don't tell me you're not. <laughs> I like the original series. I got the DVD package. Not that I could play it on anything these days back there. But yeah, I, I like the first season for sure. Yeah, we all love Star Trek. And there was one episode where Kirk and Spock, they beamed down to a certain planet. I think the episode was called Errand of Mercy. And it probably was from the first season. It was a great story anyway. They beamed down to a planet because uh, there was, well, those awful Klingons were in the neighborhood and there was a war that was about to break out. And so this particular planet, I think it was called Organia, it was a very, very strategic planet and whoever controlled it would have a, you know, huge advantage in this upcoming war. So Kirk and Spock beamed down to warn the Organians about the Klingons and how terrible and awful they were and how the Organians had to protect themselves and how the Federation would save them. And, you know, <laughs> you know the story. But the thing is, is that there was not much happening on the surface on Organia. I mean, the people were just nice enough and everything, but it was just like they were stuck. It was just like they were literally stuck in the dark ages with no no progress seemingly whatsoever for for aeons, probably eons. And so to really very much cut to the quick here, what we discovered is that as we got into the story, that the Arganians were just putting on a show for Spock and Kirk and for the Klingons. They were hiding their true nature because their true nature was they were beings of pure light so far in advancement of Spock and Kirk and the Klingons that they couldn't even imagine. In fact, as they began towards the end of the episode to show their true nature, when they just they just literally transmuted into a ball of pure light, Mr. Spock summed it up so perfectly when he said that the Organians are about as far ahead of we are, as ours, on the evolutionary scale as we are above the amoeba. And I, I just think that's just so true that, that who knows who's been here on the planet uh, way, way back in the day. It, we can get some hints for sure. One of the things I put in my book was a, there's a tribe in Africa in Timbuktu and they, well, they've got information that they just can't have. That is, if what we believe about our history is true, they can't both be true. But the this was all pointed out, and by, by the way, in a book called The Serious Mystery, a guy by the name of Robert Temple wrote this book. And it's a tribe known as the Dogons. And the Dogon just being a... a just being a primitive African tribe, they seem to know uh, in great detail about the star Sirius. And I do mean in great detail. And they also knew that Sirius was a binary system, and we didn't know that. We didn't know that until the mid-1800s, when it was just, you know, finally discovered that indeed there is a binary star system, but the Dogons knew about it well, you know, 700 years before that. Well, how could they have known that? And they had an even more amazing bit of information when they had mapped on the walls of their caves the exact movement 
and I do mean the exact movement between, I believe it was the years 1912 and the years 1990, something like that, of the exact movement of Sirius, the two, the two stars. The Sirius that we see, we call Sirius A. The Sirius that we don't see, the binary star, is, is Sirius B. So they had this exact movement of these stars, and you got to just ask, how did they know that? Well, there was a team of scientists that decided it would be a good idea to go over and find out. So they did. And they asked him, how do you guys know this? And what the Dogon said, I think, kind of blew their minds a little bit. They said, well, okay, there was this flying saucer that landed. There was these beings that looked like dolphins that came out and dug a hole and filled it full of water, got into it and started swimming around and started telling them all of these stories. So you can imagine how well these left brain scientists took that. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's what the Dogon said. And uh, I mean, we can just go on and on with that. There's another, the Euros Indians, for example, they predate the Inca and they had a rather amazing story. They told how, according to their creation stories or myths, whatever you want to say, that there was a flying saucer that came and it landed in Lake Titicaca in the Island of the Sun and that there was a great deluge that had happened and not much of the Island of the Sun was showing except what there was just one rock that had surfaced, what they called a sacred rock. This is where the ship landed and, and the beings got out and, and this was the beginning of, their, of the race, the beginning literally of the Inca race. Well, I go on to tell the story that this was a group of beings from Atlantis led by a literally an ascended master, a guy by the name of the of a Chikutet Arledge Vumalites. We now know him as Thoth, but whoever you want to know him as, he is an ascended master. And and this was Thoth who led this group of Atlanteans into the this area, and they began the Inca race. So, I mean, this stuff just goes on and on and on with it. You know, you just ask great questions about the pyramid, who built it and who did it, and uh, how could it be? I mean, how do you, how do you carry 200 pound, excuse me, 200 ton blocks around the, around the desert? And how do you lift them 450 feet into the air? And a question that's never really been answered. So you, you can just go on and on with this stuff and, and you come to the, inescapable conclusion that there's been a whole it's just like we've developed a massive case of amnesia and and there's a whole hidden aspect of our history that we are not aware of and and that we really do need to be aware of if we really want to get on with it we really know want to know who we are and why we're here we need to know where we've been in order to know how we got into this predicament, in order to know how to get out of it. And so that's why I go into great detail in the, on the history chapter as well. You know, there's a lot more I can say. Anything you want to ask in the meantime? Yeah, no, I was uh, waiting for you to sum up more because you, you just, you could keep us fascinated all day with these examples. But yeah, I have heard the the one about the Dogon. I have the, the Serious Mystery book by Robert Temple. But I do want to point out and maybe ask you to elaborate on this figure 
who you named, I know him as Thoth or Hermes Trismegistus, but you, you named his his South American name, I would imagine, which, geez, don't ask me to, to try to pronounce that. But I actually have a, a pretty personal experience with Thoth, believe it or not. When I was younger, I purchased the Thoth deck by Aleister Crowley, the tarot card deck, and just became fascinated with this figure. And I started doing this chant that I found in a book, a mantra. I found it in a book called Ancient Mysteries for Beginners. <laughs> and I was certainly a beginner. But I, I did this chant, which was Thoth. It was simply, you know, you would make sure you enunciated correctly and you would, you know, extenuate the vowel very long into a chant. Thoth. So I would do that and I swear to you, Bob, you know, there was a point in time, and the book warns of this. It says, don't do this chant too frequently, which that, as a beginner, I was like, ooh, this sounds powerful. I'm going to do the one that, that you shouldn't do more than a couple times, a couple times. And uh, yeah, it, it allegedly creates this vibration that opens your your third eye. And I felt a sensation in the middle area of my skull uh, after doing that chant. So you know, whether or not I connected with the Ascended Master or not, I, I can't be sure. I'd love to know that. But but can you elaborate on Thoth and, and why maybe chanting his, his name would have caused that for me? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that's, that's a fascinating story he told there. So Thoth, yeah, I, I said that he was actually from Atlantis. And in Atlantis, he was known as Chihutet Arles Vumalites. And so he was the king of Atlantis for some time. Oh, goodness. We actually, we need to backtrack a little bit and, you know, just dig a bit deeper into what I mentioned in the chapter on Earth history. And that is if we go, if we predate Atlantis, and we really need to, to begin to get a beat on this, we need to go into Lemuria for a while. And during the time in Lemuria, there was a couple by the name of I and Taye who interestingly enough discovered that there was a different way of having a baby. You could call it interdimensional mating is kind of what they, well, it is what they did. So they were a rather advanced, a rather, rather aware couple to say the least in order to, to discover that. But in, in, in the course of doing that, they discovered that they became immortal as a result of having the baby this interdimensional way. Actually, the three of them, the baby uh, became immortal also. And I don't know, you know, how do you discover when you're immortal? I guess one is you just don't die. You just keep living year after year. So I'm sure that after a while, they finally figured out, hey, we've been around for a while. And once they got real clear, uh, they decided that it would be a good idea to open up a mystery school, the purpose of which was to teach immortality to anyone who was interested. And they did. And they called it the Nicole Mystery School. This is back in Lemuria. And in the course of that school, they graduated about, oh, about a thousand people. It would be more accurate to say 999 because they graduated in threes. You know, the child you had becomes immortal also. And they became the first group of ascended masters. Now, who's ascended masters? Well, ascended masters, number one, are immortal. And so they've learned the trick that death is optional, that really 
the greater truth is that the human body was not meant to, you know, suffer decay and disease and illness as, you know, as we've settled for. That's just a function of not knowing who you are, of living from your from your false self. But if you become immortal, you've made the shift and you're in direct contact, direct contact with source energy through your higher self. It's coming through you loud and clear. And so you 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 just are it ascended masters are immortal they have this direct connection to source and so they have a much greater and a much deeper understanding of who they are and why we're here and what it's all about and how everything is totally and completely interconnected and so at that point they have a choice they can ascend through the heights and most of them are living literally in the higher overtones of the sixth dimension well beyond where we are right now but back in the day in Lemuria and into Atlantis, they were pretty much staying back and assisting in a much more direct way. And so you get a thousand graduates who become immortal beings. These are powerful beings. And this is all a function of the Nicole Mystery School. They probably would have gotten a lot more, but Lemuria was slowly sinking from, it's a series of island continents south in the Pacific. It was probably slowly sinking from day one. But they were very intuitive and very in tune with their environments. So they realized this and safely got transported to the West Coast of the Americas and the Ascended Masters, the members of the Nicole Mystery School, they went to Atlantis because when Lemuria finally sank, there was a new continent in the Atlantic that rose that we know as Atlantis. So the Ascended Masters went there and they opened up shop there. And over the course of, you know, kind of like setting things up and get everything ready after perhaps a few thousand years, they decided it was time to populate the, the continent of Atlantis. And so they intuitively called the transplanted Lemurians to come to Atlantis and to, you know, just join with them to become part of the, the whole Atlantis culture, which is exactly what happened. Well, there's much more to this story, but just kind of setting the scene for the whole thing being run by these graduates, these ascended masters, they were known as the Nicals, the graduates from the Nicole Mystery School. And so, you know, everything came out of that. And so this guy, Chikutet Arlich Vomalites, who in Egypt became known as Thoth, he was the king of Atlantis for quite some time. And it just, it just, it just kept going. I'm really cutting to the quick here because I want to get into Thoth because it's when Atlantis finally sank and the Egyptian culture was finally born along with the Sumerian culture. And it was the, it was from the Nicole Mystery School, literally, that got the Egyptian culture going and, and just, you know, began to restore the lost knowledge of Atlantis. I'm leaving out so much here that it makes it a little harder to talk about because what I have kind of cut over is that when Atlantis sank, we lost our memory. <laughs> completely lost our memory. And, you know, if you just think about that for a minute, you just wonder, well, is it possible in the first place to completely lose your memory? Well, the answer is yes, it is. And it happens a lot here. And it's called dementia. <laughs> and it's called Alzheimer's. 
yeah, isn't that what it's called? Alzheimer's disease, I guess, you know, where you just right. have lost everything. Right. So we know it happens and you just are back to square one. Well, if an entire culture has lost its memory, obviously the, you know, everything that was known in Atlantis is gone. And so what do you do? Well, what began to happen was the members of the Nicole Mystery School began to very slowly seed the knowledge of Atlantis into the, into the Egyptians. And it, was, it, it just began to come back. And so Thoth was, you know, he was very much a lead, lead player in all of this. To cut to the quick, the reason I know of Thoth and the way I heard of him was through another teacher of mine whom I was led to back in 1992, a guy by the name of Drunvalo Melchizedek. And Drunvalo told a fascinating story in a workshop that he gave that I took. It was called the Flower of Life Workshop. And this is where he told the story of how he came in contact with Thoth. And to very much cut to the quick, for a period of, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, he had a pretty good communication, a pretty good contact going with Thoth. And Thoth just, just fed him a whole lot of information that, that, well, just became very much the basis for, well, I won't say all of the material in my history chapter, but for most of it. I mean, had not that information come from Thoth through Drunvalo, I wouldn't have had much to say in the history chapter. So I'm really glad it did. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's just like that. So, Right, right. And I do want to ask about Mr. Melchizedek, of course. But before we go a little further there, you mentioned the Nikal Mystery School. And... Across the globe, there are stories of the brothers of the serpent wisdom who came and shared knowledge of different things, mystical things typically, with various different cultures. And to this day, we have the Nagas in India, we have the Nahagual in South America, and other variations of this word throughout different you know, languages. It gets sort of telephone gamed and chopped up. But have you, have you come across that? I think David Amaru Pinkham is, or Mark Amaru Pinkham, someone like that is an author who wrote a book about it. But does that ring to this story? Is that check out well what i've come across and i and i go into that i will go into that in much more detail in my new book that that'll be out i don't know in may or june or july or sometime of next year <laughs> that the et influence is is not to be not to be underestimated that you know as i indicated earlier in this discussion that this earth is a star seed where beings have come from goodness knows where anywhere and everywhere throughout the cosmos and uh, they've come here for whatever reason not the only place they've ever come you know and established cultures and created new races and then at the time at the appropriate time they just pick up and leave and and usually when they leave they leave no trace oftentimes because they're on a different dimensional level which would not leave a trace or for other reasons. And, and, you know, they just came and they did their thing. And that absolutely includes in creation of new races, which absolutely includes the creation of humanity. 
you know, how did you and I as humans come to be? Well, through the creation of two different ET races, and you can just go on and on and on with that, that, you know, we've been, there's been so much influence here from other ET races who have come and in some way left their mark. And so, you know, there, you might say book of wisdom or book of knowledge or whatever the case might be that has had great influence over the, you know, indigenous people that still has influence and impact today. And I think that that's kind of what you're getting at. Does that, does that feel right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for elaborating there. And Another thing you mentioned that I'd like to point out, unless you have more to say about Thoth, is the dimensional layout. This was when I asked about the uniqueness of the Earth and the star seed. You know, you, you mentioned that, well, there are many different, you know, places like this. And I'm curious if you could explain to us the dimensional layout and how it could be understood like an octave or a musical scale, right? Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating subject and it's in its own right. And one that I just, well, it, it blew my mind, you know, when I, when I, when I first heard about it and literally, I don't remember where it, when I first did hear about it, but I don't know, could have been Star Trek, <laughs> but let me just put it this way, that there's many, many worlds here, many worlds, and I don't know if it's infinite, but it might as well be, and, and they're all occupying the same space, interestingly enough. So, meaning they're all interlinked, and they're all passing literally through the very room in which you are sitting. So, what's the deal here? The key is wavelength, Mark. I'll tell you, there's the bottom line key right there, wavelength. That dimensional worlds... We can call them dimensional worlds. We can call them different densities. We can call them parallel universes. In the book, I speak of them as dimensions, but they're all separated by one another from, from one another by wavelength. And so with wavelength, just to unpack that a little bit, there's just a huge range of possibilities. You got some wavelengths that are unbelievably tiny, some that are unbelievably huge, that they would look just like straight lines. And you put them all together, and what you have is the electromagnetic spectrum. Well, our reality, and what I mean by our reality is if you take a look at the, well, the whole spectrum ranging from the most distant galaxy down to subatomic particles. And then don't forget the space in which you and I live. This is all one dimensional level or one universe. And it has a wavelength of 7.23 centimeters. And it was Bell Labs, by the way, that discovered that, not some great mystic sitting on a hill. They were about to get their their you know their new system going and they turned the thing on they had the thing tuned to about seven centimeters they tuned it on thinking that everything would be great but what they got was static unbelievable amounts of static and they dug deeper and they saw that the static was coming from everywhere because of the wavelength of 7.23 centimeters of this reality and so in order to solve that they had to amp it up <laughs> all many 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 degrees but anyway, let's just put it this way. If you look at quantum physics, you can look upon any object as either particles, 
which we do. It's not real accurate, but we do, and we call them atoms and like that. More accurate way of looking at them, Mark, is by vibration, which is wavelength. And furthermore, every particle or every piece of matter, if you will, has its own sine wave signature, its own sine wave signature. Now, if you were to take all the objects in our universe, and if you were to average them out by wavelength, what you would come with is this average of 7.23 centimeters. So now the dimensional worlds themselves, well, they'll separate it from one another in wavelength. And because of the holographic nature of the universe and of everything in the reality, they're separated by wavelength in exactly the same way as musical notes are separated on the scale. Well, all right. Let's just imagine that we have a piano keyboard in front of us and we're looking at an octave and, uh, you know, each tone sounds different. Why does it sound different? Because it's different wavelength. And so, you know, if you take a look at the octave on the piano, what you got is the white, the eight white keys, but you also have the five black keys. And if you put the two together, what you get is the 13 notes of the chromatic scale. But yet the 13th note is actually the return note, the first note of the next octave. And, and on, you know, the octaves will just keep repeating themselves on your keyboard. Well, here again, you've got the holographic nature of the reality. Music is holographic. The electromagnetic spectrum, everything is holographic. And so in between any two notes, you got, guess what? A smaller version, the holographic nature, a smaller version of the whole thing. And so you can keep going on and on with that. But the point being is the same is true with different dimensional worlds. So now taking this, this model of the musical scale and transferring it to, to dimensions, if you do that, you've got the 12 major dimensions. And in between each 12 major dimensions, you've got the holographic smaller version of the whole thing. These we call overtones. And the thing about these overtones, however, is that each one of them is a world, a dimensional world, just as fast as this one. So what it means is that you've got the 12 major dimensions times the, the 12 overtones, which gives you 144 different dimensional worlds. And each dimensional world, as I said, is just as fast, is different, separated by wavelength, and just as fast as this one. And that is only one octave. So, you know, when I first heard about that, it just kind of blew my mind, you know, just, you know, kind of, kind of, I was kind of regressed back to thinking I'm a little three, four year, five year old kid looking up in the night sky and just stuck in awe and wonder of it all, you know, it just, it just reverted back to that, right? which was really a perfect place to be because I just, the whole thing just resonated perfect with me. So I hope I explained that clearly enough so it make, makes some sense. Mm. Well, and, and it, it falls in line with what we were talking about, about this holographic universe and how everything yeah. can be right inside of us. We have all of the the universe inside of us in this fractalized yeah. way, yeah. and it helps people sort of, I think, in my mind, I can sort of structure it visually better. But when we think about, you know, the fact that for the most part, all of this stuff is considered, you know, not true to the average person because of the, the mind and its limitations. 
And we kind of discussed a little bit about, you know, the shadow government and its role sort of keeping us in this state of ignorance. But I wonder, you know, we've heard a lot about the ascended masters, people like Thoth, who are clearly trying to help us. Are the shadow government, you know, whoever they are, the cabal, the Illuminati, whoever they may be, are they working in cahoots with a, a being on the level of Thoth, but, you know, aligned with darkness or, or aliens even that have, you know, sort of Klingon intentions, so to speak? Of, of, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. yeah. They sure do. <laughs> yeah. I've discovered they're aligned with a, with a race of beings that are known as the Draco reptilians. Who, who are not really nice guys. And, and and the whole purpose is, you know, like I suggested earlier, that if there's just a few thousand of you, how are you going to control the masses of billions and billions of people? Well, fundamentally, you hoard the knowledge and you keep the masses in ignorance. And so keeping you from knowing who you are and why you're here is a pretty good way of keeping you in ignorance and then keeping you stuck in fear. There's one of the real keys right there. The Draco reptilians especially absolutely feed off of our collective fear. And so the more we go into collective fear, the more they thrive. And the cabal thrives on it too. But with all that being said, what I was suggesting earlier is that there is very much an infusion of higher dimensional energy, energy coming in, into this place from the higher dimensions, the fourth dimension and higher, that is of a much higher vibratory rate than the third dimensional vibratory rate on which we, this is where we are currently are on the third dimension. What this means, and, and I make the case just you know, step by step, slowly but surely in the book, that we are living on a planet that is very much in the process, deeply into the process of moving from the third dimension into the higher higher levels of the fourth dimension. And in the course of doing that, what's, what's propelling us is literally the cosmic energy, the supergalactic wave that's known in the in the, you might say, the depths of the secret space program. They've been out there, they know it's real, and it has an absolute impact on everything it touches. And so what it's doing is on the Earth here, it's accelerating things dramatically by shining the light on the darkness, shining the light on the individual darkness within our souls, and at the same time, shining the light on the collective darkness so that everything and everyone is waking up. Waking up. When the darkness comes to the surface, you are now being given a chance to revisit it so that you can let it go and discover the higher truth of what, you know, on a collective scale, just exactly how we've been deceived and how we've been lied to and how we've been manipulated on an individual level. This is the basis for the breath alchemy technique as you learn to tune in to revisit on a feeling level the the feeling component of all that stuck energy that you've been suppressing due to judgment and learning how it's been experientially blocking you keeping you stuck in your mind how it's been blocking you from your true nature from your connection to source and as you transmute that energy the transmutation the transmission now 
the energy opens up again so the transmission is able to is able to proceed in other words you reconnect yourself to source and all of which is absolutely essential in the ascension process because ascension is moving into the higher worlds and you can only move into the higher worlds in an awakened state you can't get there when you're asleep and living life as though you are your mind. Mm -hmm. So that's a bigger picture view of what's going on on the planet here. Right. And, and so you begin to get a sense of why the book was aptly named. Nothing in this book is true, <laughs> but it's exactly how things are. Right. Because you know what it's like to, if your family thinks you're crazy, you know, there's a few people who think I'm a kook too, <laughs> but that's all right. I've learned how to make a living off of it. And I do... And I do trust that what I'm what I'm revealing here is is very much universal truth. I don't make stuff up. I don't I don't just you know it it has to ring true. It has to very much on a deep level resonate before before I'll be, even begin to print it and share it with the masses. Right. And what I'm so what I'm so pleased to say is that you know here again nothing has been out for nothing. This book is true has been out for 25 years right now. And the difference, my goodness, and how much more awake we are today than we were 25 years ago. In spite of all that, that all being said, nothing in this book is true 25 years ago. Took, it took off like wildfire. All of a sudden, I became an overnight sensation. I was getting on a plane, going somewhere, talking about my book every weekend, giving workshops all over the planet. But relatively speaking, the planet was just beginning to wake up then. We've gained, we've learned so much, we've grown so much since then, and I'm just so pleased to share that, that, you know, people are, to a much, much greater degree, absolutely able to hear what I have to say today, and which is great, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to trying to toot my horn. I'm just trying to help wake us all up so that, you know, we can get on with it so that we can come here and live our life as though we were meant to live our life. And so we can move into a dimensional world, the fourth dimension, where check this out for size, Mark, where in even your very best moments here in our third dimensional reality, could you imagine living in a world where every moment is at least a hundred times more satisfying, more fulfilling in every possible and every conceivable way than even your best moments here in third dimensional reality. Would that be a life worth stepping into? What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's well, and I, I wanted to ask you, as you're saying this, it sounds fantastic, but I think there are some people who, you know, maybe think that they're, are not going to be, you know, not everyone's going to make this ascension. Is that true? Will there be a split where some people, you know, remain in the third dimension and, and the, the, the people who are attuned to this vibrational shift will sort of be in that fourth dimension and, you know, sort of coexisting in the same plane, but that seven point, you know, two, three, or however many centimeters difference. Seven means point two three is the third dimensional wavelength. Fourth dimensional wavelength is a much shorter 
wavelength, mm. much higher vibratory energy. And what I mean by higher vibratory energy is that the energy that's the energy of truth. That's the energy of pure inner peace, of connection to source. That's the energy of oneness, of joyfulness, of creativity, of inspiration, of compassion. Mm. That's very high vibratory, very quick vibratory energy. When you stop and think about it, when you're vibrating very densely, that's where you're stuck in fear and limitation and where you're stuck in in revenge and you know <laughs> stuff like that so to make a clear distinction between vibratory rates you know when you're vibrating at a very high level you're in tune with life and you feel great when you're vibrating at a very low at a very dense energy life sucks and everybody is bad and wrong and like that okay we're moving into the higher worlds now the normal scenario is just as you pointed out where you might say only a few make it through initially into the higher worlds and interestingly enough now, I don't really go into this and nothing in this book is true. You're going to have to wait for my new book to come out called Catching the Ascension Wave. And in that book, I make the case for how indeed that there are beings, you might hire beings who you might say their job is that when the shift occurs and there's, you know, there's just so much. I don't know we can go into, we can't, into all the detail and, and what it is that allows for a shift to, to occur. But when the critical mass is reached and the shift does occur, what tends to happen is that those who are ready will go into the higher worlds. Those who are not ready are assisted by beings from a higher world whose job it is literally to take these people who are not ready to ascend, transplant them to another third dimensional planet where they can you know live out their karma and and just live their life until they are ready to ascend forever long it might take wow. they can learn what they need to learn do what they need to do and all of the rest of that and as far-fetched as that might seem there is plenty of evidence that i that i've uncovered to to suggest that that is indeed indeed the way the way it works yeah. will that happen this time around even though i make the case for this being a very unique ascension that we're approaching and that it's a likelihood or at least it's a very high possibility that everyone or almost everyone will go into the higher worlds ready or not here we go uh you know, it's just as likely, if not more so, that only those who are ready will go through. Mm. And those who are not ready, as I suggested, will be taken to another world where they will be given their opportunity to, you know, ascend in their own in their own way, in their own time. Why taken to another world? Well, because what usually happens when the planet is ready to ascend is that on the surface of the third dimension, you wouldn't want to be around here much longer when it's going on because there's some rather significant earth changes that take place. A solar flash that on a third dimensional planet, nothing is going to survive. There are going to be earth changes commonly known as pole shifts and, you know, just you wouldn't want to be here and don't worry nobody will be here because before that happens those who are ready to ascend will ascend those who need help will be transported to other other third dimensional planets and third dimensional earth will go through a you might say purification process 
after a few billion years, why it might be ready to take on new third dimensional beings. But life will still be here on Earth. It all will have ascended up into this, into this shorter wavelength, higher vibratory fourth dimensional world. Which to me, you know, I mean, look, you know, when I first discovered this more than 25 years ago, look, it blew my mind too, but it blew it with awe and wonder. Here again, I'm just like the four or five-year-old kid looking up at the night sky. And the reason I say that is because it all resonated with me. I had done enough emotional healing through breathwork, through quite a few years of breathwork, when this came to me, so that I was able to, I was able to tune into, you know, into presence, into my into my inner awareness, into my higher self. And if the the yardstick I use is that if it if it resonates with me. If it feels right within on a very deep level, I'll go into it. I'll explore it further. If it doesn't, I just let it go. And so all of this stuff vibrated with me, resonated with me on a very, very deep level. And it still does. So on that level, I trust that it's true. You know, you might say, well, I, you can't prove that it's true. Well, hell no, you can't prove it until you're actually ascending and living in the new world. But And then you will know it's true. But here again, when you're in touch with your connection to source through your higher self, you don't. You just learn to follow your spirit without hesitation, which is another way I'm saying that when it resonates on a very deep level, I just trust that something is real, that it's really true. And if it doesn't, I know it's a lie or the common term for it now is disinformation, which is sprinkling all over the place mm. so so it's like that with me and excuse me for rambling but no I, no, no I do get carried away <laughs> no it's it's fascinating stuff Bob and and I'm certainly not on the doubting side of the equation but I understand you know placating that because there are a lot of people who might hear that and and it's just so new that they can't fathom it but I'm curious, has this happened on the planet before or has it been a gradual scaling up to this point? Like, could we have been in a higher state like the fourth dimension in our ancient past when Lemuria was still a continent not sunken under the sea? Yeah, yeah, as far as I can tell, we were. And before humanity came along, who knows what dimensional level some of those beings were on. And then, speaking of humanity itself, ourselves, there's the Nikals, the Ascended Masters, the highest aspect of ourselves. And they, for the most part, are residing on the higher overtones of the sixth dimension. I mean, that's a level of awareness where we just can't even begin to possibly imagine what that might be like. Right. But what happened 13,000 years ago in Atlantis is we fell. And I make the case in the book from a much higher level of awareness, where we, at least to a much more significant degree now than we have now, we were in unity. And so we were living much more from the heart-based reality of oneness and connection to source than you ever can from your living from your, from your conceptualized mind. But we fell. We misused our powers in such a way that it caused us to fall. There's only certain times, you might say, in, in the cycle of history where these types of ascensions or, if you will, descensions can happen. And I go into that in the book. We don't have time here to go into it. But one of these times came up 13,000 years ago. And so when we fell, we lost everything. 
And this is why the Nicals were slowly but surely reseeding the knowledge of Atlantis to those of us who had lost our memory completely. And so if this is true, then we were on a higher level of awareness and, and we lost it. And now we're in the process of regaining it and very, very much in the process of regaining it. So that's, that's the quick answer. Right. Right. And I know we're coming up on the top of the next hour here, Bob, but I want to ask you a sort of a speculative question before we get to final thoughts and wrapping up. You know, we, we have to assume if we're going to be thinking keen that the shadow government is going to maybe be aware of this too and, and try to get ahead of it. And my question to you is, do you think that the metaverse and the VR world that they're trying to create could be a, a, a further ensnarement to keep people away from this ascension wave? Okay, there's not much that they can do about the ascension itself. There are certain beings that have fallen so far from grace that they're, it's, it's, it's like there's no hope for them. And when you have, have you sunk to the level of these guys, of totally controlling and dominating a planet, you become as much stuck in your left brain as, you know, you've to the nth degree. And life just doesn't know how to, how to, how to, how to get a being that's fallen that far down out of it. And so ascension for them is not real. There's the good aspect of ascension where you move into the higher worlds, and there's the, there's what would appear on the surface to be the darker aspect. What they see and about all they're able to see is the darker aspect. They see the destruction coming. And so, and so in, in their their whole attempt to get out of it was to go to Mars and to try and go underground. They built very, very sophisticated underground underground cities that they hoped to escape to and survive the changes, the solar flash and the the whatever else happens, the pole shifts and all that and survive it that way. And then they hardly care about us. What they do not see is the ascension. So it's kind of like, you know, the end of the line for those guys. I don't see how they're ever going to make it into the higher worlds. They might just, they just might, they just might go kaput when it, when it, when it all happens. Well, it's, it's like the default fear of mind survival mode has taken over their, their, you know, life path. And, and yeah, they're sort of getting themselves out of the opportunity unbeknownst to them to a better life because they've they've taken the material route to to sort of superficial pleasure and and uh, satisfaction they're stuck in their own creative trap yes yeah. that's, that's kind of like the, the the bottom line as i see it with those guys there's just one more point that I would really like to make here, and that's the whole idea of waking up. And really what happens is that, you know, people wake up when they're ready. You can't force it upon them. You can't, you're, you know, you must wake up right now. You can't take somebody and shake them and say, wake up. I mean, if you try that, good luck. All you're going to get is more resistance and more, more of that from them, you know. So people wake up when they're ready. 
The great news is, is that the higher vibratory ascension energy is so permeating the earth right now that people are waking up in much, much, much greater masses than they ever have before. And so how I see that, you know, now relative to 25 years ago, is that people just naturally that I talk to just naturally resonate with what I'm saying, much more so than they did back in the day. And I just see that as great news. So, you know, there it, it appears as though, well, it's more than an appearance. We are going through a dark night of the soul. No question about it, individually and collectively. But what I see is that this is the necessary step that we have to go through. Like I was suggesting earlier, darkness cannot survive in the presence of light. And when you amp up the vibratory rate of the planet, the darkness begins to become exposed, both globally and individually. And because everything is a function of consciousness, if you can learn to ride with the wave, to go with the flow, that's not only a very necessary thing, but it's a very, very good thing that's happening. It is the healing that must happen in process. Because in order to ascend, we got to clean up the mess that we've made. We have to wake up. We cannot go into the fourth dimension in, in our sleep state and take all this false narrative and nonsense that we've created with us. And so that means, you know, we got to clean up the globe, we got to clean up the planet, and we have to begin with ourselves. The greatest way to heal your planet is to heal yourself. It's the only place you can begin. Because we all are greater, a smaller part of the collective whole. We're all a hologram, all a piece of the whole. And as we heal ourselves, Mark, what we're doing is we're contributing to the critical mass that must be created created and is being created that in the absence of which the ascension cannot happen it can only happen as long as it has the conscious participation of those who have woken up and woken up who waked up however you say that enough to join you know to join the club to be part of the solution instead of an unconscious part of the problem so that they're participating in the creation of the critical mass and so when the critical mass hits it's bingo the whole planet becomes lit from within and away we go that's to me really exciting <laughs> fantastic wow bob i really want to thank you you know you're a trailblazer and the work that you've done and your peers have done have you know made the work that I'm doing and my peers that are that my peers are doing possible right by writing the books that you wrote and I got to ask you you know what are your thoughts on the the podcasting world as a vehicle to wake people up I mean I've seen it happen uh, with my show people reaching out and and saying you know uh, all sorts of answers from you know oh I woke up 10 years ago to I woke up 5 years ago oh I woke up during this whole mess that we just went through in the past 2 years I mean how do you feel about podcasts I think podcasts are great and I just go back to saying thank you so much for inviting me on to the program where we get a chance to spend a couple of hours talking about I mean there's nothing I would rather talk about more for a couple of hours and so, you know, what I've noticed so much is that is how much you resonate, how much you resonate with all of this. And resonance is real stuff. Everything is vibration. There's nothing that is not, nothing in waveform universe, let's put it that way, that isn't vibration. 
And so everything vibrates on a certain on a certain wavelength, on a certain resonance. And so I'm just picking up that you're vibrating on a very, very high level. And that goes out to your audience. My goodness, they hear that. They pick up on it and they just want to hear what you and your guests have to say. And I'm just, you know, here again, for me, it's just been it's just been an absolute pleasure just being able to be in the company of someone who resonates with this so completely. So just thanks. Thanks so much, Mark. And for the work that you're doing. I mean, you are reaching a lot of people and that's really, that's a good thing. Thank you for the work that you are doing. Bob, that is the kindest thing anyone's ever said to me on this show. Thank you so much. That is that is. So I think you're going to hear a lot more of it. You just keep going the way you're going. And oh, you're thank doing you. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Wow. This has been really a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, and and I'm enjoying your first book. This second book, like I said, synchronistically, uh, a friend who sent me a couple books, he said, oh, wh what book would you like? I said, make it a surprise. And he just happened to pick the Bob Frissel book. So, <laughs> I mean, how could it? How could he have known? He couldn't have. So, yeah, it, it's well, all in due uh, time. You could say there's no accidents. You could say that. Right, right, right. Well, this has been a, a pleasure, and for everyone listening out there, please go and check out Bob's work. I'll link it all in the description. He has a new book on the way coming next year. I hope you'll join us to discuss that around the time that it's released and help promote that book as well, and, and I hope to get a copy myself. But until next time, folks, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Bob Frizzle did not disappoint. The man's written uh, four incredible, well-known books, and I was just lucky enough to have him on the show here. Uh, very grateful for the opportunity to speak with Bob. Nothing in this book is true, but it is exactly how things are. This is his first book. He's got a few more that followed that, and of course, the newest book is Catching the Ascension Wave, so be on the lookout for that. You can find some more information about it if you search Bob Frizzle's name on Google or just go to innertraditions.com and go to his author page. I definitely recommend getting the uh, 25th anniversary edition of Nothing in This Book is True, but it's exactly how things are. It's a classic. You want it on your shelf. Uh, it will elucidate many things, and whether you are a new age person or not, uh, you will at least have a sort of uh, all-in-one place, all-encompassing understanding of some key elements to the new age lexicon of ideas and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I When I first learned about all the New Age stuff, I was very drawn to it. And then as I've learned more and more and more, uh, I've be learned to become skeptical of everything. So as much as I relate to the New Age path and I relate to a lot of the New Age information, uh, I don't ever want to take one stance on this show. So if New Age philosophy is not your thing... I get it. I understand. Uh, but Bob Frisell is a great intro to that if you are unfamiliar. So go check out his work. You can also check out his uh, 
breath alchemy work and uh, activate that Merkaba that you have inside of you. As for me, I would like to thank everybody who supported with a one-time donation last week. Please do not, uh, please do not hesitate to send a one-time donation if you can. It really helps the show. Sign up on Patreon. Sign up on Rockfin. You'll get early releases of all of the content here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Uh, we put the episodes on Patreon a couple days early when I'm able to. And of course, you get bonus shows on the Patreon, the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue, and you also get the Illuminati Confirmed bonus show. And speaking of the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue, I just did a third episode. I have a few more scheduled. Uh, but if you'd like to schedule a chance to talk with me, uh, you can go to the link tree, in, or you can go to the link tree link in my description of this episode and sign up for 30, 60, or 90 minutes, and we'll just talk. Whether you need advice or not, whether you want to start a podcast or not, it really doesn't matter. Uh, if you do, that's great, and I will certainly help you. But if you don't, we can talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. So, please reach out. Don't be shy. Join in on a synchro wisdom dialogue between you and I. I'm over here enjoying the late fall. Things are coming to a close. Thinking about what's going to be written in the next scene. Scene edition two. Fall edition of our magazine zine uh, thing. And Juan Ayala, my buddy Juan, has put out... Well, he's inspired me to get into this with full force, to be honest, because, you know, we all know I did it first, but Juan came through with this incredible idea to put together the Occultist Monday um, zine, and yeah, it's really cool. It's going to have articles each month provided by people like myself, and they're all going to be compiled in a nice little article you can pick up a copy read it uh wherever you read put it on your bookshelf keep it it's a memento a collectible speaking of collectibles you gotta know by now if you're a regular my family thinks i'm crazy listener that we have a new sponsor for the month of october and boy does it fit it's the hit kit and the hit kit is the key to your smoking paraphernalia it's the key to your smoking regalia. It's the key to your smoking uh, repertoire, your smoking equipment. It holds your smokables all in one place. That's your lighter, your blunts, your joints, whatever it is that you smoke. You put it right there in the hit kit. It's safe and sound in your pocket. Whether you're going for a hike, you're walking, you're on your commute, wherever you're going with your tasty buds, you need a hit kit. You won't lose your lighter. You won't crush your joint. You won't crush your blunt. Go to hitkit.us. That's hitkit.us. And you can check out the full lineup of hit kits. They don't just have one style. They have many styles. They have the big coffer. They have the classic hit kit. Me, I like the big coffer because I roll big blunts. And also, you know, you could put your lighter in the coffer and the lighter stays there. You don't have to take it out. You just leave it in there, and when you're ready to smoke, flick it and go. That's it. It doesn't even leave the hit kit. So go to hitkit.us, use the promo code CRAZY, 
and uh, help out our sponsors. Help out our sponsors because that helps out the show. This is a value for value show. And if I think that the sponsor is a valuable sponsor and they could, you know, provide some value for me in the form of ca- cashola, ka-ching, if they could provide some cash and they also have a cool product that's not totally abhorrent to this podcast, well, then we're going to do that because this is value for value. It's a sponsor, not an advertiser. Okay. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, well, that's not what Adam Curry says value for value is. Well, this is what my definition of value for value is. Um, Anyways, if you would like to support the show and keep things going, like I said, Patreon, one-time donation, Rockfin, it's all in the episode description. Help a brother out. That's all for today's episode, folks. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, enjoy. Oh, and that uh, meditation I started at the beginning of this episode. There will be a link in the description if you would like to read the full meditation uh, as well. Anyways, thank you for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking.
peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, Wait.